You may have noticed that as that that is a song that Hannah wrote um, after Samuel was she became pregnant with Samuel, and she says, "May the king be exalted." But there was no king at that point. And this morning, I'd like to just tell you the story of how we get to the point of a king in Israel. So it really all starts out with this this woman um, named Hannah. Uh, when I was a little kid, I, I actually uh, first grade or so I. I was in a play, uh, and I still remember the song that we sang that was, Hannah had no children, she was very sad. So every time I hear Hannah's name, I remember that little song, that that was my part. Because I, would, I came out and sang, that, that's the only thing I remember about that play, I remember that line, and so that's my singing for you today. Um, so, Hannah had no, no children, there was a man, his name uh, was... Um, uh, Elihu, and he, he um, uh, uh, Elkanah, and he had a wife. He had two wives, actually. There was Hannah, and there was Penia, and they, uh, Penia had a bunch of kids. Hannah could not have any kids, and so it was bad news in the Elkanah house because there was constant back and forth. Shockingly, Penia would, would mock Hannah and be like, you don't have any kids, and I do, and so it, it brought her to scorn. She was upset, and so they had gone to the house of the Lord to, to worship. And uh, Hannah was so upset that she went to the temple to pray to ask God for a child. And she's standing there and she was praying in her heart that God would answer her prayer. And, oh, God, please give me a child. And her lips were moving, but she wasn't saying anything. And there's the high priest at the time's name was Eli. Now, what we know about Eli is he was a, a very bad father and he was a fat dude. Beyond that, we don't know a whole lot about him. And so he is sitting there, and he's watching Hannah, and uh, he thinks that she's drunk. And so he jumps to conclusions. He's like, hey, how long are you going to keep being drunk, drunk woman? And she said, oh, no, I'm not drunk. I was just praying. And he said, well, then may God answer your prayer. He's probably embarrassed because he just called her drunk. And so he said, well, maybe God will answer your prayer. Or he didn't say maybe. He said, God will answer your prayer. And so she went home. Uh, found out that she was pregnant, and the prayer that the song that uh, Chad and, and Connor just read was the song that she sang when she found out that God had answered her prayer and given her a child. That God was the one who lifts and puts down. God is the one who makes rich and makes poor. God is in control of who has a kid and who doesn't. And so she praised God. She recognized uh, from whom her blessing came. So, Eli, as we said, had two sons, and they were big-time losers. There was Phineas and Hophni, and it all started out with me. The way at that time the custom was, was that the priest would go up to this cauldron, meat would be boiling on the cauldron, and they would, the priest would stick a fork in there, and whatever came out, that's what he would eat of the boiled meat. Well, Hophni and Phineas, as you can see in this picture, are, are, are very discontented, and they, uh, they didn't like boiled meat. I don't like boiled meat either. And so they decided instead of boiled meat, they wanted them some steaks. And so what they would do is when people brought their sacrifice before the Lord, instead of burning the part that God had specifically said to sacrifice, they would cut them off a of filet mignon and go grill it and say, here's what we're going to eat. And that's where it started. Now, it went from there to uh, them uh, hooking up with the ladies at the temple, the people who would come to, to worship God. They'd be like, hey, baby, and, and it, it just went downhill from there. But it all started out with, I'm just going to hook myself up. And I think it's interesting that if we, we read the story, and it doesn't seem like that big a deal. 
You know, they're going to get meat. Who wants to eat boiled meat? Uh, other than the British, nobody likes that kind of stuff. And so they're just going to grill them something. What, what is the problem here? But it started with disobedience, and their, their lives went lower and lower and lower and lower. We talked about, which this is a perfect example of what we talked about last week, that the devil doesn't attack us with things that appear to be big. It's always just a little bit. Just step across this line a little bit. Nobody cares. It's just some meat. You're already getting meat. And yet God sends a prophet to Eli to warn him and say, Eli, unless you get your act together, unless you straighten these boys out, I'm going to remove you from serving as my priest and your family will be kicked out. And Eli did nothing. Now, I hate that Mother's Day celebrations in church are always like, Moms, you're awesome. You're great. Moms, we love you. Give Mom a rose. And then on Father's Day, it's always like, you guys suck. Get your act together. So I'm trying not to be that way, but this is a really important lesson for Father's Day that I see here. Eli chose to do nothing thinking, well, if I'm just going to you know, just let it slide. And I'm here to tell you that one of the most, the loudest things you can do in rearing your kids is nothing. That you just sit back and let them do what they want. The effort to invest in your children, to love them, to say no, they don't like to hear no. I know that they don't. I have five kids. And when they go at... 8 o'clock at night, hey, Dad, I got an idea. I was going to go spend the night with so-and-so. And I'm like, I don't know so-and-so. I don't know so-and-so's parents. You're not going. They don't like that. Oh, my gosh, Dad, everybody's going to be there. It's going to be awesome. There's going to be rainbows and, and clowns, and we're going to shoot fireworks. Why can't I go? My life is destroyed. But the most loving thing I can do is say, get yourself in there and go to bed. It's 8 o'clock. We're not coming up with something at the last minute. It's my job as a parent to say no sometimes. And Eli didn't say no. He didn't do anything. And we will see the consequences of that. So, Hannah has this baby boy, Samuel. And she, once Samuel gets up to about four or five years old, she sews a little ephod for him, a little outfit that he could wear that would be just like what the priest wore. And she took him out of faith and turned him over to the house of God and allowed him to serve there. And so over a period of time, Eli one night was laying in the bed, or Samuel one night was laying in the bed. Oh, look at there, there's Samuel with his little teddy bear. And so Samuel's laying in the bed, and he's going to sleep, and he hears Samuel, Samuel. Not being a crazy man, he assumed it was the only other person in the house. He went up, went to Eli and said, yes, master, what can I do for you? And, and Eli says, I can call you, go to back to bed. A little while later, Samuel's laying there all snuggled up with his cuddle bunch. What is the name of Ruthie's bear? Snuggle bunnies? Is it snuggle bunny? Sort of, okay. So he's, he's snuggled up there with snuggle bunny and uh, Samuel, Samuel. He gets up again, goes back to Eli. Eli, what is it? What do you need? And Eli's like, I didn't say anything to you, dude. Go back to bed. When your kids come in the middle of the night and start talking to you, you all know what you say. Get back in the bed. If there's no blood or vomit, I don't want to hear it. I was just telling somebody today that 
Uh, every year in the fall, whenever it starts getting a little cold in the basement, we get field mice that come in the house. And um, it happens every year. And so every year I'll, I'll put out some snap traps. And a couple of years ago, we had, had some glue traps we'd put out. And it had actually gone over the fall. And, in, uh, uh, and we, were, we were back around the horn to the next year. And one night, about 2 o'clock in the morning, Emily comes in our bedroom. Now, my daughter Emily is what? She's like 19 now. Comes into my bedroom at 2 o'clock in the morning crying, there's something under my bed. Well, I didn't want to hear that there's something under your bed. You're 19 years old, child. There's no monsters under your bed. Go to bed. And she's like, I can't go back in there. And I'm like, well, then sleep on the couch. But I ain't getting up. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. And so she goes to sleep on the, sleep on the couch. And I go into her bedroom the next morning to find this monster in the bed. And sure enough, there's a big old rat that was glued to a glue trap, very angry and upset, still squealing and shuffling. So I'm sorry that I didn't go check on your rat in the middle of the night. But um, <laughs> Samuel is the same way. Go back to bed. Samuel Eli tells Samuel to go back to bed. Samuel hears Samuel. Samuel, third time, he gets up. And finally, Eli gets it. He goes, look, it's not me. It must be God. So here's what you do. When you hear Samuel, Samuel say, here am I, God. Speak and go along. And so here in a few minutes, Samuel, Samuel, here I am, Lord, speak. And so God said, I, there's a thing that's about to happen in Israel that the ear of everyone who hears it will tingle. And it wasn't a good thing. That God was going to remove the house of Eli and they were going to lose the priesthood. So the next morning, little Samuel gets up. Eli says, Samuel, what did God say to you? And he said, you better tell me all of it or may the curses that he, God told you fall on you as well as whomever. And so Samuel told him the whole thing. Eli, from any, all indications, still did not change the behavior of those boys. He still allowed silence to reign. So, in the land of Israel, the cycle that we read throughout the book of Judges was this. Israel would fall into sin. God would allow their enemies to come in and capture them. Israel would cry out to God and repent. God would raise up a judge and deliver them. And then they would fall into sin and then they would cry out to God for repentance and to save them. And then God would raise up a judge and deliver them. The cycle we see over and over and over again. And you know what? It's a cycle that I see in the church today. Over and over and over again. And let me just be honest with you here. It's a cycle I see in my own heart. So, the Philistines came and they attack the children of Israel and this time, instead of repenting, instead of calling on the Lord, they came up with an idea. Here's what we'll do. We'll take the Ark of the Covenant and take it into battle. And so they got Hophni and Phinehas to load up the Ark of the Covenant, put it on their shoulders, and walk it into battle. And so off they go. Now, here's the problem with this. They weren't actually calling on God. They weren't actually repenting and saying, God, save us. They weren't actually calling on God. They were using God like a good luck charm. They had a God that was small enough that he could fit in their pocket and they could take him out whenever they wanted. And I see that, and if you look around you, you'll see that all the time. When somebody's in the hospital, 
when there's some trauma in somebody's life. Oh God, I need you now! But they're not willing to take up their cross. They're not willing to turn from anything that they're doing. They just want God to come help me. They think that God is at their beck and call. God, let's go, come on. Come on, let's go, God. I need you now. And then when God has saved them, they think they can go, all right, thank you. I'll get back with you if I need you again. So the children of Israel did not turn to God. They didn't call out to God. They just took the accoutrement. They took the Ark of the Covenant and went marching in like they were going to win the day. The Philistines heard the Ark of the Covenant show up because the children of Israel were excited. Surely God's going to win now. Woo! We got God. They sang some praise music. They were excited. God, 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 you can go God. And the Philistines who are off in another camp, they hear the excitement. They hear the emotional enthusiasm of the children of Israel. Woo, God, go. And the Philistines said, oh, what are we going to do? There's a God in their camp. And then they said to each other, you know what? Unless we want to be slaves to them the way they're slaves to us, we need to gird up our heart and we need to get in the fight. And so they and the Israelites came together. Surely the Israelites would win. They have the Ark of the Covenant. God allowed the Philistines to overpower them. 30,000 foot soldiers are killed. Hophni and Phinehas that are carrying the Ark of the Covenant are killed. And the Philistines have the Ark. And off they take it. Old Eli is back waiting on news, sitting around at the gate. I picked these pictures out myself, by the way. Um, He's sitting there waiting on news, worried. The servant comes up. The Ark of the Covenant has been taken. Your sons have been killed along with 30,000 others. And old fat Eli falls over backwards. He's so fat that when he falls over, he lands on the back of his head, breaks his neck, and dies. Just a little way down the way, Phineas' wife is giving birth. She hears about what's going on. She gives birth to a son, and she names the son Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. And God's promise that when, when I finish doing what I'm doing, the ears will, tick, will ring of everybody who hears it comes true. And all of Israel's in mourning. God had removed His glory. That Ark of the Covenant that they had led them to victory, uh, had led them across the River Jordan, had led them across the Red Sea, is now in the hands of the Philistines. Now, the Philistines had the Ark. But you see, God wanted to teach the children of Israel that I'm not your good luck, good luck charm, but He also wanted to teach the, the Philistines that I am God. The Philistines think, we got us this good luck charm. We're going to take this in and put it in the temple with our God. And so they go marching the Ark of the Covenant in and set it beside Murdoch, their big graven image. They go to bed that night and they wake up in the morning and their big golden statue is laying on his face in front of the Ark of God. And they're like, whoa, this is not good. So they sit their God up. Now, how do you worship a God that you have to sit up? How do you worship a God that you have to empower? Because God, His ark is sitting there and there's no children of Israel around to protect it. God doesn't need our help. 
And so here they set Murdoch back up, thump, and they set the ark of God back in, beside him, and then they go to bed that night, and they wake up in the morning, and just so there'd be no doubt that this was an act of God and not just their statue falling over, now Murdoch is laying prostate before the ark of God, and his head and his hands are on the threshold of, the, of the Murdoch's temple. And they're like, oh no, this isn't good. At the same time that this is happening in the city that, that they've got their temple in, rats all of a sudden start taking over the city and all the people get a disease. Now, some people have suggested that the disease that we're talking about is actually the bubonic plague. And apparently, I've never gotten bubonic plague, but whenever you get bubonic plague, you get big boobobs, I guess, on the side of your neck and you get these big tumor-looking things all over your, your body. And so... Uh, that was not ugly. Boob- I can say boobobs. <laughs> I'm getting a dirty look from my wife like I'm getting in trouble. Um, so they had tumors on their neck. Some people have suggested that where it's talking about tumors, not to be too indiscreet, uh, that what we're talking about is hemorrhoids. I don't know. I wasn't there. But here's what I do know. There were rats everywhere and they got tumors. And so they said, get this ark out of my town. And so they take the Ark of the Covenant to the next city down the street. You know, the Ark's in Glencoe. They take it down to Rainbow City. Hey, hey, we got an Ark for you. And they left it off. Well, guess what happens in that city? Same thing. Rats start taking over. People get their boobobs. It's a bad scene. And so those people in Rainbow City are like, get this thing out of here. So they load up the Ark of the Covenant, and they start to take it to a towel. And the people of the towel says, stop. We don't want it. We don't want no boobobs. We don't want nothing to do with this thing. Get it out of here. And so they, they get the priest of Murdoch and they say, what do we do with this thing? And the priests say, here's what you need to do. First of all, you need to take and make some golden images of your boobobs. Put that with the ark as a peace offering. And you need to make some golden rats because who doesn't want them a golden rat? Mother's Day gift for next year. I got it now. Um, so they made some golden rats. They put it on a cart. They took two calves that had never been weaned from their mama. And they put it on a cart. And they said, all right, here's what we'll do. We'll let them calves go. And if they go back to their mama, the way calves that have never been weaned would do, then we know that all this was a coincidence. So apparently the Philistines weren't the brightest bulbs in the bulb box. But if the calf goes to Israel, then we'll know that all this is of God. So they let the calves go, and guess where they go? They go back to Israel. And so, the Ark of the Covenant is returned to the children of Israel. So, now we have Samuel judging all of Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mitzpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. And then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there he also judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. So Samuel lives his life, and he did not learn the lesson of Eli. Because Samuel's sons did the same thing and worse than Eli's sons. Samuel did not teach his sons, he did not discipline them, and he was more focused on ministry than he was his own family, and he lost his sons. There's a huge lesson there for us. So the children of Israel rise up and say, all right, 
this whole thing with judges that we get every couple of years, we're tired of this. We want a king. And Samuel says, no, you don't. You think you want a king, but you don't. Because if you have a king, that king is going to tax you. Governments have a tendency to tax. they got to pay for all this stuff. The king will tax you. The king will take your men, your young men, and send them off into battle to get killed. The king will take your young ladies and use them as maidservants. You don't want a king. And then he goes before the Lord and says, God, can you believe these rebellious, stiff-necked people are saying that they want a king? And God told Samuel, listen to me. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. So they want a king. Give them a king. Now, pause here for a minute because theologically this is very strange to me. Before the time of Saul and David, in, the, in the, the law, there's discussion about a king. We just read in the song of Hannah where she pray, prays that God would protect the king. But when all this has happened, there is no king. And so you would think, since it's in the law, how a king is supposed to act, because, because you, we, there's mention of the king, that the, what would happen is, is that God had planned on there being a king, Right? And yet while this is happening, while the children of Israel are demanding a king, God says they're rejecting me when they call for a king. In fact, when Solomon dedicates the temple, God tells Solomon that a king will sit on your throne who will reign forever. And yet if you look at the kings of Judah and Israel, there's none of them that are good examples. I mean, the best example you can think of is maybe David. Really? I mean, think about what David actually did. There are two great sins in David's life. There was the whole situation where he, with Bathsheba, where he ends up killing his best friend or one of his friends, uh, one of the people that he listed as one of his mighty men. He ends up having killed so that he could have sex with his wife. He ends up, uh, after that, he ends up defying God, counting the people so that all these people are killed because of that sin. David's not a good example. You can look at all the kings and it seems like they just get worse and worse and worse. And then you'll have one that kind of kicks up and maybe does something good. But then that one will do some bad stuff and we don't have any examples of a good king. I, I honestly believe that what God is trying to show that no human being could ever be good enough to sit on the throne of his kingdom. That we would always be lacking until he sent somebody to sit on that throne. If we look throughout the Old Testament, we see this picture that something is coming. Something is coming. So, Samuel says, uh, all right, if you want a king, you want a king. So, in 1 Samuel chapter 10, we read that there's a dude named Saul. And when the Bible describes Saul, it describes him as he's a good-looking man. That's not me, that's what the text says. He's a good-looking dude. He's the best-looking guy in all of Israel. He's a head taller than everybody else. He's tall, he's buff, he's tan, he's the man. So, Saul, the story picks up. Saul is at his dad's house. And his dad loses some donkeys. 
Isn't it funny that the whole story of, uh, of, Saul's, uh, of Israel's first king starts with some donkeys? I really wanted to say that different, but I knew Anne would get mad at me if I did. So, so we start out with some donkeys. So Saul's dad loses some donkeys, and Saul and some buddies of his get sent out to go find these donkeys. And they're traveling around. They can't find the donkeys anywhere. And yet two days later, they've looked for the donkeys, and they say to each other, look, here, okay, at this point, Dad doesn't care about the donkeys, and Dad's sitting at home going, where's my boy? So let's head back. Well, one of his servants says, hey, right here in this town is a prophet of God. Let's go hit him up and see if he knows where the donkeys are. And then there's this whole discussion about, well, we don't have anything to give him. And, and one of his servants says, hey, well, I got, some, I got some pocket change. And So they go to Samuel and say, hey, what's up? And Samuel knows who they are, knows what their situation is. In fact, tells them, all right, the donkeys you're looking for, they've already been found. And Samuel tells Saul that God has chosen him to be the next king of Israel. Saul loads up, goes back to his dad's house, and as he's walking up to his dad's house, his uncle comes out and says, man, where have you been? The donkeys have been found. And Saul tells his uncle all that Samuel had said about the donkeys. But he left out the part about the king. Which is interesting to me that Saul's like, dude, you won't believe this. We met this guy, and he was able to predict that y'all found the donkeys. Isn't God awesome? Okay, so I'm going to go over here now. So a little while later, Samuel calls all the children of Israel to come to Ramah. And everybody comes. And they cast lots over the 12 tribes. And the lots fall on the smallest tribe of Israel, the Benjamites. And so the Benjamites all come out. And then he takes all of the clans of the tribe of Benjamin. And they cast lots. And the lot falls on the household of Kish. And so he takes that clan out. And they cast lots there. And the lot falls on young master Saul. And they say, this can't be right because Saul's not here. We can't find him anywhere. And so they start looking around for Saul and they can't find him. And then God said, hey, your new king, he's hiding in the luggage. And so Saul, they go and find Saul, hidden in the luggage, and they say, hey, our new king. And some people said, this guy ain't the king of nothing. And then Saul, as strange as this sounds, goes back to farming. Now, isn't that weird that all of a sudden God said, hey, you're the next king of this country. You're the bomb diggity, man. And then he goes back to farming. So a little time passes, and the Ammonites come against a particular part, Jabesh Gil, uh, uh, Gilead, and the people of Jabesh Gilead go to the Ammonites and say, please, you know, don't attack us, let's go. And the, the king of that particular group said, here's the deal. We will let you live if all of you people will pluck out your right eye so that it humiliates you and the children of Israel, and then we'll let you live. And they said, well, that sounds like a great idea and everything, but let us think about that. Now, the reason why they wanted him, one of the reasons they want him to pluck out their right eye is because if you are shooting a bow and you're right-handed, you look out of that right eye, and so that would make you unable to defend yourself if you plucked out your right eye. Second of all, that's a pretty big demand. Um, so Saul is out uh, plowing in the fields, working in the garden, uh, driving a hoe, I guess, and he's doing his thing, and the word came to him about what the Ammonites did. And the Bible says that the Spirit of God came on him 
and he was angry. And so he took the oxen that he was using to plow the ground, cut the ox up into pieces, and sent it throughout Israel and said, if you don't come help me fight the Ammonites, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to be a hunk of ox. And so all of the children of Israel came together. Now, the writer of his is putting side by side the story of the Israelites against the Philistines where they take the Ark of the Covenant on and the, the story of the, the Ark of God's not involved, but the Spirit of God is involved with the Ammonites. The Spirit of God fell on Saul. And they went against the Ammonites and won a great victory. And all of Israel celebrates, yes, it's, we won. And remember the people that said, he ain't the king of nothing. All the people say, hey, remember those guys that were running their mouth about you, Saul? Let's kill them. And Saul shows some great leadership and says, no, today is the day for the Lord. Nobody's going to die here. And he let, let them pass. But now Saul is established. And this part of the story is closed out with Samuel as a crudgety old dude who gives his farewell speech. Chad, did I pick a good picture? When I read, uh, when you, I read 1 Samuel 12, this is the image that I have in my mind. All right, you people, let me tell you about this. Let me tell you the way we used to do it back in Ramah. And so he tells them kind of the history of him with God, and they all start saying, why did we call him for a king? And this is what he tells them. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all of our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to, to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. And I want to park here for just a sec. It's an amazing passage. And I don't know if you were here or remember um, this sermon that we closed out the First Samuel stuff last summer. This is a strange way to say anything. He says, do not be afraid. And here you would expect Samuel to say, don't be afraid, God is great in mercy. Don't be afraid, it's not that big a deal. Don't be afraid uh, because God's going to forget this. But what he says is, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. That's contradictory. That doesn't make any sense to me. Unless you read the rest of what he says. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. And this is why this brings me joy. Samuel is saying to the children of Israel, You're wicked. You're disobedient. You're stiff-necked. You forget what God has done over and over and over and over again. And all of that does not affect 
the character of God one little bit. Now this is where this is awesome. You can't do anything. You can't do one thing to make God love you any more than he does. He loved you so much that he sent his only son to die for you. And no matter how long you work in VBS, no matter how often you sing, no matter if you you teach, you preach, no matter what you do, God's not going to love you anymore. He's loved you as much as he can. He loves you infinitely. Nothing you can do can make him love you any less. Samuel is saying, you are wicked. The issue came down to not the people, but it came down to who God is. He raised them up for his namesake. Do you understand the implication on that for us? The Bible says that he called among the Gentiles and made a people that he will be their God and he will be their people for the glory of his name. Martin Luther said it this way, when the devil reminds me that I am a very great sinner, that reminds me that I require a very great savior. God did not save you so that you could be a better person. God saved you to magnify and glorify Himself. Because you know the angels in heaven on March 23, 1984 when God looked down in nowhere in Alabama and said, I'm going to save him. And Tommy Harrison walked down an aisle to get saved. I know those angels are saying, why in the world would you waste your time on him? And God was saying that if he, if that wicked, vile sinner, if I can take him and save him and use him, it will glorify me because nobody's going to look at him and say what a great guy he is. They're going to look at anything he does and say, what an awesome Savior he serves. And that's the same reason he saved you. To magnify himself so that when people see the good works that we do, when people see the love that's not natural, when people see us acting like Christians, they go, wow, what kind of God can do that? That not only that they save him, but that God can use him. And so there's nothing you can do, nothing you can do to pump up God's love for you or to make God love you any less because the reason why God saves you is for the glory of his name. I know we're Americans, but it ain't about you. It's about him. And as long as we as a church make everything that we do glorifying to Him, magnifying to Him, He guarantees He will bless it. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great namesake. Because 
it pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Father God, Lord, we thank you for this text. Lord, we thank you that in the midst of the starts and stops and mistakes and sins, that you were faithful to your name. Lord, I thank you that in my life you've been faithful. That when I am unfaithful, you are faithful. When I fail you, you stand firm. And that you have been, will be, and are now the God that provides. So Lord, I pray this morning here at North Glencoe, you would allow us to call out on your name and to glorify your name with our lives in everything that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This altar is open.